Hello everybody, it's Gary Stuckey with Real Music. On today's episode, I tell you what, one of the most talented guys ever in the history of rock and roll. The talented Rod Argent, you know him from the Zombies and the band Argent. Tearing up the Hammond B3 and playing the keyboard and just so awesome. And his songwriting's amazing and singing. Uh, and been doing this for over 60 years and still going strong. Got a brand new album out. Got to talk about all that. So awesome. You know, just excited to see a guy with all that history uh, just talking to you and seeing his eyes light up when he tells stories. And uh, I love it. So here he is. Here's Rod Argent. Are you ready to okay. roll? Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, well, tell me this now. You know, these days you're watching TV, you know, you watch something like uh, Night of the Living Dead or The Walking Dead and you see zombies, you know, but back in back in the day, uh, I don't remember seeing a lot of zombie movies. How'd you come up with the name The Zombies? Well, you're right in the sense that um, the first sort of modern ish zombies film was in 1967 and that was Night of the Living Dead. And even though there had been in the very early cinema, there'd been a, um, a zombies film. And I can't, I, I, I never heard about that for years, actually. But it was, you know, it was one of the very old actors in it. Um, but the first modern zombie film was in 67. Now, I vaguely knew what a zombie was. And, and we'd been trying to get a name for the band. It's always very, very difficult to get something that sounds unusual um, or ear-catching, right. um, or had some, you know, some uh, slightly interesting, in a sense of, um, uh, you sort of peak your senses a little bit, um, phrase. Um, and uh, we've been called the most awful names for about for about a month. We've been trying to name ourselves when we after we first got together. And we had names for about a week, like the Mustangs, and I think the Sundowners. We were we were looking at um, you know films like The Searchers uh, was named after a John Wayne film. So right. uh, we, I think there was another John Wayne film, or at least a cowboy film called The Sundowners. And and for a week we were the Sundowners, and then we realised that that many other people would be called something similar, and. Um, and it didn't feel like a good idea. Uh, and then one day, the only guy ever to leave the band was um, a guy who became a Canadian doctor. Um, and he had a, he's had a, a surgery practice in Canada for many, many years. He's still practicing, actually. Um, and um, he said, what about the zombies? Now, I loved it immediately because I thought, first of all, the Beatles had just come out in the UK and they came out in 62 in the uk and had their first real success i know it was a couple of years later in the states but in in the uk it was 62 and and they were pretty cataclysmic when they came out same as they were in in the states um and i thought well if you get a name that no one else is going to have then people don't start if you're lucky enough to get any success at all then people will just relate the guys in the band to whatever the name is so um right. In other words, when people think about the Beatles, they don't think of insects or a play on words, even beat, you know, they just think of John, Paul, George and Ringo. So right. 
Um, and I thought if we were lucky enough to get any attention, then that's that would be the same thing. And no one else is going to have that name. And um, I loved it because that Colin hated it. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and he 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 said, I don't know what a zombie is. And I said, well, I know it's something to do with Haiti um, and and um, people being put to work after they died, you know, and all that sort of thing. A little bit of black magic. So it, it right. felt a, a little bit exotic to me, but I didn't really know anything about them. But uh, Colin had no idea what a zombie even was. And do you know what? I don't think any of us, well, certainly either, neither Colin or myself, have ever watched a zombie film all the way through ever. <laughs> so but, we must so, be some of the only people on the planet, you know, that, that applies to. Well, somebody says there's a there's a zombie apocalypse. You think they're talking about you and the guys? Hey, but yeah, that's good. And I, that's... I thought, well, yeah, yeah. It's uh, I hadn't realised that we'd made as many waves as that but there you go you know accept it and enjoy it <laughs> awesome stuff man uh well so so you guys started uh what around what 61 was it it was 61 when we first got together um and and we did what dave Grohl so wonderfully said um he said i'm just going to say to guys if you want to be in a band just go into a garage and suck. And, and we certainly did when we started, but we, we you know, we use, we use wherever we could get to, um, to rehearse. And we loved what we were doing, even though it was pretty poor at the beginning. But we very soon, that was in 61. By 62, I think, um, we were ready to accept our very first gigs. Um, and I have to say that in the St. Albans area, we picked up a really big local following very quickly. Um, and in fact, I remember the first gig that I, no, second gig, I think, that I ever remember doing came out virtue of Colin. Colin was a real sportsman when he was young and he played a lot, he played a lot of rugby. He was a very fast sprinter. He was one of the, um, the, the top uh, sort of 10 sprinters as a schoolboy in the country, I think, over over 100 yards, as it was at the time. Um, oh. But anyway, uh, he was a member of this rugby club, and he said, they're having uh, a dance with the dance band. And he said, I've got us a spot for 20 minutes in the interval. So we, we all turned up. Um, we put up our gear, uh, the very primitive gear that we had. Um, and there were, I reckon there must have been about 15 people in the audience. That was all for the whole dance or 15 or 20 people or something like that. Um, and we, we went on at half time, went down really well and they wanted us to come back and headline. And then um, about a month later we came back and um, probably 50 or 60 people turned up. Wow. So, uh, and then within a year they were building a marquee on the side of this rugby club for the regular gigs that we were playing there. And we were, we were drawing 400 people. Um, and this is very local. This is all St. Ormond's. Um, and then we entered a beat competition called the Hearts Beat Competition. And we actually won this. And the head of Decca happened to be in the audience. And he knocked on our door backstage and said, I'd love you to make a record for Decca. And, 
I went away and composed a song for that, which was just the second song I'd ever written and uh, called She's Not There. Uh, and it went to number one around the world. So it was a wonderful start for us. You know, that is interesting, you say, because you say you, you hadn't really written anything. What what inspired you to write? And what inspired you to write that song? What was that song all about? Well, the thing was that I always say the same phrase with the naivety and ignorance that you only get once in your life when you're when you're starting out. Uh, I had no knowledge of any of the pitfalls or anything that could go wrong. You know, you have uh, all that naivety and energy and you think, yeah. And I thought, yeah, I can write a song that's as good as the Beatles and it'll come out and Colin will sing great, sound great singing it. We put loads of harmony on it. Um, it'll sound great recorded and, and it'll be a hit all around the world. And it was. I, I mean, it was just ridiculous. The, and, and very soon after that, we, you know, we found out the reality of things when things didn't work out like that, of course. But um, at the beginning, I, I, I was in love with rock and roll. I was in love with with music generally. Actually, I was in love from with rock and roll from um, the age of eleven, uh, when my cousin Jim Rodford, who was later the bass player with the Kinks, um, uh, on their biggest ever selling hits. Um, and uh, he was he was the guy that introduced me to rock and roll. He was four years older than me. And he played me Elvis when I was 11 years old. And he was already in a skiffle group at that time. But I, I just thought this guy was like a guy from another world. And I thought there's no way anybody in England could get any anywhere close to what he's doing. But I've got to be part of this in some way or other as soon as I'm old enough. Um, right. And when I was 15, that's when I started the band by finding two or three people um you know who could play a little bit and and that's when the zombies was formed um but when when we got this opportunity of, of a single we were going to do the george gershwin song summertime uh and we got involved uh before the session this this uh chris wyatt the original bass player of the zombies uh had a family friend who was um, a professional musician. And he said, I know this great guy uh, who's a great musician uh, and he's had some success with production, record production. He said, you should get the contract that Dick Rowe, the head of Decca, um, has given you. And, 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 and this guy who was called Ken Jones will look over it for you. And so Ken Julie did that. And he came back to us and he said, well, it's a pretty good contract really. He said, but there are one or two clauses I would change. He said, I'd advise this and this and this. And we said, yeah, okay, great. And then another family friend of Chris's uh, who knew Ken said, um, you should get Ken to produce, you know. He said, you could have a, 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 um, a, a not just a staff producer at Decca, you could get Ken to produce you. So, so Ken did. And he said to, he came round and he said to us, you know, you could always write something for the session. And I went away and she's not there. Chris went away and, and wrote You Made Me Feel Good, which became the B-side of She's Not There. Um, and and that was it. Now, I, I had about two weeks to write this song before we started rehearsing it for the session. And I remember picking out some uh, recent at the time for me, uh, John Lee Hooker albums that I had at home. And I just thought I've got to find a, a starting point something a trigger so 
the first track on the John Lee Hooker album, which I really liked, the, I liked the album, I mean, um, was called No One Told Me. And I played it. Now, I, I, I hasten to add that it had nothing to do with the song that I'd written. But, it, it, I mean, it started off something like, No one told me. It's just a feeling I had. Or something like that. Um, and I thought, well, I actually love the way those words trip off the tongue nothing to do with the melody or what the story of the song was about just no one told me and i thought i've got to find a starting point and i started weaving a song around that now i had two other ideas in my head at that time um the beatles first album over here um or first it was a very very early track that they did um was called not a second time and it had a, a traditional sort of Ringo broken rhythm in the verses um and I thought I want you to play a broken rhythm in the in the verse and the other thing was that I was apart from being in love with the rawest rock and roll I could find like Little Richard Jerry Lee you know all the great rock and rollers and Elvis of course early Elvis only the first yeah. three years but that very early Elvis I yeah. mean that's the only thing I ever listened to now of Elvis is the first three three or four years um but um uh I, uh, I thought I, I, I'd also discovered the Miles Davis band of around 1958. Um, and, and his first album that I bought was called Milestones. Um, and it had the track Milestones on it, which I loved. I can still sing you the, the solos, the Coltrane and Cannibal Ladley solos on that. Um, wow. And I loved it. Um, and I didn't know at the time because I'm basically a self-taught musician, but I didn't know that he was experimenting with modal um, scales and harmonies. But there was something about milestones which really got inside me. And I I remember years later having a chat with Pat Metheny uh, when Pat, Pat Metheny was introduced to me. And I'd, I'd, I'd never heard of Pat. He, he'd only just started. Um and and to the amazement of people around me, he knew who I was. He said, Rod Archer, he said, you wrote She's Not There, didn't you? I said, yeah. And and he said, oh, man, he said, that was the that was the, the song that and the record that made me feel I could find a way ahead in what I wanted to do by making a fusion of, of jazz and, and, and rock music. And I was so knocked out because I'd just seen his concert and thought he was absolutely wonderful. Um, but and he said to me, he said, all that modal stuff that you had at the beginning on, um, you know, on the verse. And I said, well, thank you very much. But I went away and I thought, there's nothing modal about She's Not There. And then I went home and then I suddenly realised that what I thought was just a simple chord change, I constructed a phrase over it, which um, uh, was a modal phrase to tie it all together um, with the chords, with what I played on the piano. So if you hear... hear you know, the opening piano figures on uh, electric piano figures on She's Not There, that is a mode. And and I'd done it without knowing what I'd done. Um, but I, I was... So while I thought I was just writing something that was just... You know, I thought this was our version of being the Beatles. But right. in fact, when I look back on it many, many years later, uh, I can see really how unusual the construction of that song and and how what the zombies were doing at that time, and it was all completely automatic and 
not deliberate. We weren't planning to do anything. We were just working off inspiration and off the way that we were excited about what we were doing and what we were writing. And we were having a ball. And and that somehow transferred itself onto the record. And in in a quite a magical way, it it you know, that, that first session was was really a great session. And and in fact the very first song I ever wrote, we also recorded on that session. It's called It's All Right with Me. And when you look on Spotify, that's still um one of the tracks that of the zombies that that's well up there in in what people um tune into on spotify what they stream and, wow. and that's extraordinary you know because that was all from that time so that that was that was the the start of me getting into songwriting and of chris white also getting into wow. songwriting and there was no like that back then and i think you started something there and I, I, i'm sure you've had a lot of people over the years that are well known that have said you know you were a big influence on their plan like i'm like i'm i'm listening to greg riley of journey in santana and i'm thinking yep he listened to you i don't know if he's ever came out and said that or, or what but i i do hear it and i, I hear a lot of people and i'm like yep and in tell me this though the doors now i know the doors yeah. were later did they ever come out and say that y'all influenced them because it, the sound is definitely there. I think the keyboard player from the Doors did actually give me um, did did make some sort of tributary remark to me uh, or, or about me um, really a long time ago now and said that that it was an influence um, and also uh, I always remember being knocked out because one of my very favourite early um uh, hit records in the west coast was the birds eight mile high eight miles high um and i think it was mcguinn that said that said um it was the zombies uh improvising on she's not there that made me feel there was there was a way of including the stuff that i'd heard in jazz like coltrane and everything and and incorporating it into for instance eight miles high and he said that song would not have been written um, without if the zombies hadn't done She's Not There. And she's and, and he actually said something really nice about me, something about, um, uh, you know, it was something like uh, it was it was Rod's um, uh, improvisation on She's Not There that made me feel um, that, that this was a way ahead of combining things. And, and that was the writing of Eight Miles High. And that was a, that was a, a record that I absolutely loved. So that, that felt really terrific to me. And, and, you know, you mentioned Santana. And I remember the very first time I heard their version of She's Not There. And it completely knocked me sideways. I thought it was great. Because I always felt there was like a hidden, um, a hidden Latin feeling way underneath she's not there i mean there was nothing obviously latin on our record yeah. but i always felt there was a real sort of undercurrent of the way i feel things and i always feel things um when i write um melodically and um in terms of phrasing i i always think in in a, a sort of syncopated way in a very pushed way i'll i'll, I'll push uh, syllables of a phrase, you know, make them before the beat, um, which is a very right. Latin thing to do. Um, so in small ways like that, um, 
and and they they did just a wonderful job on that. I think it was actually Bill Graham from the Fillmore that that persuaded um, Carlos to actually um, do. She's not there. He kept saying to him, "You should recall she's not there." You know, and 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 he always said um, that how much he enjoyed uh, the, our record, but he was trying for a couple of years, I think, to to work out a way that he felt he could make it his own and do it, it you know, in the Santana way rather than just copy the record and really put right. his stamp on it. And, and oh, my God, did he do it? It was just beautiful. <laughs> and I've always loved his playing and the playing of Santana. They were one of my my, my very favourite bands when they first came out. So that was um, that was a huge thrill for me. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> um, you know, and and I'm I'm going back there watching the videos. You know, of course there were no videos back in the day. What they were live performances on TV and things like that. But you know, she's not there. And and there's a couple online, and and you you look like you're really getting into it. You know, I know you were probably having the time of your life. You know, um, how did you come up with that just solo and the, just that feel? I mean that that's so amazing you don't just come up with that stuff nobody can just come up with that how did you come up with that it's just you start just jamming and it's like what is he doing it's crazy good are you talking about the actual record itself now yes yes well I, let me tell you that um all all my solos when they're first put down and that includes you know, my later man, Argent, when we did Hold Your Head Up, they're totally right. improvised. They're totally off the top of my head. And and and, and then later on, I, I often revisit the construction of the original improvised solo. And I always try and change things a bit, but, um, you know, to keep them fresh and to take things in, in new directions, etc. But originally, they are all improvised. We, there are, I have heard outtakes from... The original she's not there session and time of the season as well and oh, wow. and you can hear the solos and and all, on all the early zombies tracks if you hear the alternative takes the solos are totally different each time because they are they are just improvised um you know and and i did love jazz i mean you know the the, the improvisation i did was a very rock and roll sort of uh improvisation and jazz but they had lots of sort of jazz elements in the sense that i wasn't trying to insert anything it was just what i felt naturally and, and i was just trying to amplify the excitement of the music basically that was the only thing i ever did i i really came to grief sometimes because in the early days uh there are very few visual clips of the zombies in their very early days because we were very badly managed in those days and nothing was ever kept but you'll always see on the clips that do exist, that when it gets to the piano solo, the cameramen don't know what's going on. In their minds, rock and roll is guitars. So yeah. as soon as it gets to a piano solo, I start really giving it everything, and the camera goes on the drums, or <laughs> it goes on to the rhythm guitar, you know. And no, they just didn't get it at all. Um, and I had to live with that. Um, but, you know, it's funny, really. But... Uh, you know, but but they are, as as I said, initially, those solos. Even if I later revisit them, and I mean, when I play, hold your head up now. I always try and construct a different solo, but I'll always start with the the, the phrases from the original solo 
on on the album version of it um uh, and then start developing it from there but i'll always start with the same phrases but that was totally off the top of my head when argent were originally playing um and and i think that way you get a real fresh feeling if you if you get something good the freshness of it being genuinely immediately improvised actually yeah. kicks in with all the other musicians because they respond in a different way they respond right. in a really fresh way because they're listening to that particular phrase or whatever for the first time, you know, and, and and it's always been, I mean, with our present band, the present version of the zombies, they're such great players and, and they're listeners. They all listen. So if, if in the middle of time of the season, I go into some different areas, different phrases, they're there immediately. And that's so lovely. And that's, you know, that's what really turns me on still at this age to get, to get out there and, and 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 it, and and we all feel the same, really. It energizes us, you know. And and when you're on stage, honestly, um, honestly, Gary, for for that hour and three quarters or two hours, or whatever it is, when you're on stage, there's no difference as, as to when you were 18 years old. You yeah. you have the same energy, you know. It just feels the same. And I don't think there's another profession in the world that makes you feel like that. I've been there, not in the same uh, level. But uh, yeah, there, you're right. There's no other feeling like that. Um, and, but hey, in that video, in some of those clips, though, like you said, the cameraman, though, you, you know, he didn't know where to go. There's one of you, and you kind of look up, like, oh, he's getting me. And there's like this statue or something. And you're yeah, like, oh. yeah, that's one of the few things love- that still exists. <laughs> yeah, I know. And, and you're like, hey, I'm on TV. Hey, but <laughs> yeah. that's, that's cool. They, they had no clue who, you know, who this guy was. This is a talent here, people. You got to film this guy. Um, but I was looking. You know what? The, the statue, the, the bust of the guy I was looking at was Beethoven. I think. <laughs> I was just looking. Well, there you go. Beethoven. Yeah. They thought Beethoven was playing. It was so good. Um, <laughs> and and I noticed that Colin, though coming out, you know, he's got that Beatlesque look. You know, um, yeah. I guess that was the style back in the day. And he looks so serious when he's singing that song. Did y'all try to be really professional looking when you're, you know, doing? a show or something back then what was your mindset as far as presenting yourself on stage well i have to tell you about the very first time that i ever saw myself on film and my image of myself this was before we turned professional (laughs) but it was at a 21st birthday party of somebody that we'd been booked to play at and um we were playing away and my image of myself in my head because I'd never seen a picture of us playing, was of this really cool dude who was being really sophisticated and cool as I was playing. And when the camera went on me, when I was playing a solo in something or other, I, I could see this Muppet, you know, going <laughs> completely bananas, sort of, you know, like this all over the place. And I thought... Oh my God! Who is that? You know, and that was right. so that destroyed my own image of myself completely for a while. Um, <laughs> and there was another, there was another very funny moment again in our very very early days, one of our very first gigs. Before we went and played this professional, semi professional gig, um, I decided, or we we decided between us that a couple of the members in the band hardly moved, particularly Paul Atkinson, the the guitar player. He looked very cool when he was playing, but he hardly moved. He just stood there. And we thought, we have to 
we have to make more of a stage presentation of this. So we started working out these very old fashioned moves, you know, from like, I don't know, the ventures or something or, or right. you know, something from from 10 years before us that where people were half dancing, you know, sort of doing these moves. And right. um, it took us so long to work anything out that um, <clears throat> in the end, when we got on stage, there was only one song that we worked out moves to. So we played half the show and everyone was standing there, almost completely stationary, just standing there playing. And then suddenly we did a Johnny Kidd song called Shaking All Over. And then suddenly all hell broke loose in this um, choreographed routine that we'd done. So the guitars started twirling around and Colin would duck underneath these twirling guitars um, for, for this one song. And, and it was just complete. And people were just looking at us in complete amazement. And then we went to the next song and we were all standing there absolutely still again. <laughs> it was so funny um, seeing that go on. But, um, you know, we, we got we got past those uh, those very early gigs. Awesome, man. Wow. Um, and, and during those times, though, and I was reading about uh, George Harrison gave you a thumbs up on, on your song. Uh, what was it on the jukebox jury show? Do, do you remember uh, that when George is saying, hey, he likes the song? Oh, well, honestly, in those days, I have to tell you, and it was probably the same in the very early days of the Beatles uh, success in, in the States. Any word from a Beatle was like word coming down from Mount Olympus. It really, you know, it was it was the word from the gods. I mean, it really was. And I remember <clears throat> our manager saying, oh, your record's going to be on Jukebox Jury. Now, Jukebox Jury, you probably know, but for people that don't, um, they used to play about a minute and a half or two minutes of, 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 of um, maybe oh, eight or nine records. And then the panel would all decide whether it was a hit or a miss. Um, and um, George Harrison was on. And then our manager phoned up and said, um, I think they're going to play your record on Jewelbox Jewelry. It's, it might not happen because they might not get to it. But, you know, it's on the cards that it'll happen. And uh, A, we thought, great. And then I heard that George Harrison was going to be, be on there. And I thought, oh, my God. And and, and, and when the, the programme started, I thought, oh, my God, George Harrison is on it. If they play our record, if he doesn't, if he says something bad about it or doesn't like it, I, I don't know how I'm going to carry on. I mean, it's going to be, I, I won't be able to stand it, you know. And then, anyway... George wasn't being horrible to anybody, but he was being very honest, like the Beatles always were, uh, which was a real breath of fresh air in those days. And, you know, a record would come on and he'd say, well, I don't know. He said, that, that's, that's not a hit. He said, it, it sounds like so many other records, you know, et cetera. And then the next record would come on and he'd say, well, you know, that this bit's okay, but it doesn't quite make it. And then... They said, right, the next record is The Zombies, which she's not there. And I thought, oh, my God. And they played it, and and they went to George. And George said, well done, Zombies. He said, I really like that. He said, that's a hit. He said, and he actually said something like, and I can't remember all the words. He said something like, if that's their real pianist, he's really good. And I thought, shit. You know, <laughs> that's, that's 
that you know if nothing else happens to me in my life you know this <laughs> this is i've you know this is it i'm i'm going to luxuriate in this and and it right. was the most wonderful thing honestly it, it was just gorgeous to hear that and it and it was like word from the gods you know in those days and i'm sure that that made people go out and and listen to it and 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 buy it i mean because in those days you had to go into a record shop and they would play half the record for you and you you'd have headphones and and they play half the record for, if so you can decide whether to buy it or not because in the uk there was no radio needle time at all nothing there were there were it was jukebox jury and maybe one other program where a dj would would play for half an hour half of a few records and that was it that was it. and th- luckily soon after she's not there started to make an impression the pirates started so um broadcasting off off the coast and 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 the whole of right then um and that's why the bbc had to get on the bandwagon in the end but um, in those very early days, you had very, very limited way of pe- uh, people hearing the record. Um, right. And and that really helped us, you know. It, it, and then once it, once of course, once it started to move, uh, it got its own momentum and um, became a big hit, which was absolutely gorgeous. Awesome. Um, and... Uh, oh, can I just say one other thing? Yeah, that go ahead, that go um that that day in um 1956 i can still see myself in the room with jim when he played me hound dog and because first of all uh he played a bill haley record which i sort of quite liked but it didn't do an awful lot for me and he said well just listen to this so i've just bought this it's just come in and he played me hound dog and my whole world changed as it did with many people have said the same thing i think probably you know van morrison and maybe the stones and the beatles said the same thing i don't know um <clears throat> but it changed my whole world and then when i saw him on on this little clip on tv um from america i thought this 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 man is from another world you know there's no way i can ever we any of us can be anything to really do with that but nevertheless i have to try and dip my toe in the water you know and i did form a band when i was 15 and that was when i met paul atkinson and then colin and everybody um and then just eight years later when it went to number one in Cashbox in in the states and number three in billboard or number two it might have been two even i can't remember um uh many years later i found out that elvis had that record along with two other of our records on his jukebox and that was just wow. eight years after <laughs> i'd i'd heard this universe changing experience you know and there suddenly eight years later which these days the last eight years have gone by in a flash you know as you get older right. but um right. but you know to to think that elvis actually had i mean i i remember um us all in 65 trooping along to elvis's house and and we just opened his gate and walked up the drive. There was no security. Knocked on the wow. door, and and I think it was Vernon that came to the the door and said Elvis was away uh, filming. It, and he said, and I thought this was just southern hospitality. And um, he said, uh, but he really loves you guys, and and he'd be real sorry to have missed you. So 
uh, we thought, well, it's a lovely thing for him to say, but he doesn't know who we are. But that's OK. That's that's some hospitality. That's lovely. Then he said, right. have a look around. And he invited us into the house. And we felt very embarrassed, you know, and just stayed there for a few minutes. And then and then went, uh, went out. Um, I, I, and it was all those years later when the, an, an Irish DJ said to me, I was telling that story. And he said, I, I can't believe you didn't know that Elvis had three of your your songs on his jukebox at that time. Wow. <laughs> That's just, that's crazy. But that's, I mean, that's, that shows you how good you are and how good he was. That's, that's oh, amazing. Man. Well, he so, was, a, he was, he was a God as well for me, like with many, many other people, you know? Right. Sure was. Um, well, you know, later, uh, whenever y'all have been around a while and uh, now this is something I've been wanting to ask you now, uh, the, the song uh, time of the season. Yeah. Um, there's a phrase in there that says, who's your daddy? Had that phrase ever been used? Did you coin that phrase? I think I did. And I'm only saying that because many years later, uh, a sports reporter from New York said to me, he said, I've, I've tried to trace the origin of, of this phrase. He said, and it became used in black culture, um, first of all, but um, and used in sports very much, you know, who's your daddy? Um, right. Uh, and he said, and he said, yours is the first um, use of that phrase that that I can ever trace. Um, so there's a good chance that we were the very first people ever to, ever to use that phrase. So, um, you know, I, I think that that's supposed to be true. Yeah. Awesome. That is a, that's a great song. What, what's the story behind that song? I mean, what what was the motivation for that song? Well, I I tell you. Uh, at the time, we were recording um, obviously an oracle, and the reason we we produced it, uh, Chris and, and I, Chris White and I, who were the two writers in the Zombies, um, we become very frustrated at the way our previous singles, our recent singles, have been um, produced and recorded. We loved the very first session we did, and and everything that was on that. Um, including She's Not There, You Make Me Feel Good, the, the song I mentioned before, It's All Right With Me. We thought they all sounded really exciting. Um, and we did a version of Summertime, which we thought was great and has been used many times it, on sort of definitive um, biographies of George Gershwin, actually, apart from anything else. Um, but the recent singles before Odyssey and Oracle had really frustrated and disappointed us because they just were not the way we'd heard the, the songs in our minds when we wrote them. So we said we have to, it was in the air that we might split up. So Chris and I said, we have to, at least, we don't know if we can produce, but we have to try and produce an album ourselves to get our own ideas of how our songs, when we write them, should be transferred to record. And we had the great good fortune of, of being able to do it with um, uh, uh, Jeff Emmerich, Peter Vince, and they were beautiful to work with, uh, and said lovely things about about us right through the years. I mean, in I think in Jeff Emmerich's uh, autobiography, he 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 quotes us as being one of the few original groups that he recorded uh, outside of the Beatles, um, awesome. and said some lovely things about us. Uh, so that was lovely. But um, it was the time of, of 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 it was the sort of great peace and love movement, and while we weren't in any way naive about this and we, and we could see the naivety of a lot of the things that were going on it was still a very powerful movement and it was a very in my 
opinion. It was a very um, powerful reaction to what was going on in Vietnam and the fact that for the first time ever, footage was being broadcast. It wouldn't be as as, as topical and realistic as um, uh, as footage that's used now on the news, but it was a huge revolution at the time. And the whole of the young generation around the world was seeing the reality of war in, in detail, in real terms. And it made them, of course, say, we don't want anything to do with this. Um, we, you know, and that's where the peace and love thing started. And it was very powerful, even with all the drawbacks and the naivety and the misuse of drugs, which caused huge problems as well. Um, but in those early days, it, I, I, I couldn't help, along with everyone else, a, about being affected by the, I think they call it the zeitgeist, don't they? You know, the feeling that's in the air um, a, about everything. And, and the fact that you could have these huge festivals um, where, uh, certainly in the, in the earliest days, there was no violence, you know, uh, it was just unbelievable to get that many people together without violence. I, I know things changed later, but um, that was the, the feeling in the early days. And it was very powerful. And I wanted to write a song that had something of those sort of feelings within it without being too literal at all. And I'd always, I, I said to you that the first song we'd ever recorded was George Gershwin's Summertime. And I've always had a love of that song. Um, and, um, I was just thinking, I have one more song to write for the album. Um, and I came up very quickly with that particular song. And at the time, I shared a flat with Chris White. Um, we had we had a room each in this this flat, and there was a, a third person who had another room. So the three of us just, just in this flat. And I remember playing it to Chris and saying, I've got this very simple idea for a song. I think it could be a hit, you know. And I was the only person in the world who thought that before we recorded it, but I really did. And, and it always had a very simple construction in, in my mind. And, and like, like so many of the tracks I did, I was always trying to insert a bit for me to play in it. So I had not one, but two solos written into it, you know, in the, in the middle and at the end. Um, Jeff Emmerich recorded it. Uh, it was the whole thing was recorded in, in about. It, in fact, the backing track was recorded in about two hours um, wow. in Abbey Road. Um, Jeff got this beautiful um, bass and, and tom tom uh, 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 coordination of the two sounds together. It, you know that boom, 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 that bit. Um, yeah, uh, and I, I didn't quite know there was nothing unbelievably unusual in it but it just it just sounded magical to me and 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 then i had the idea of the claps and the and the vocal percussion which we just yeah. put on at the last half an hour of the session and then we had a second session for it where colin did the vocal and we did the harmonies um and that was the recording of that song but um when i was writing the lyrics to it i had about a, a um when I'd started writing it, written very quickly, um, I'd been thinking of, of summertime and um, and the feelings, the feelings in it were a bit sort of peace and lovey in the sense that lines like, uh, what's your name, who's your daddy, is he rich like me? Um, that was really a feeling of, um, is he rich in terms of 
can he show you what you need to live? In other words, not financially rich, but is he rich in his mind and, right. and, and what he's able to pass on to you? You know, it was those feelings, but I didn't want to spell anything out. It was just, that was the feeling that was in my mind when I, when I was doing it. Um, and I wanted to get some of the sort of atmosphere and feeling of the lyrics in, um, uh, in summertime. And, and, and there was one line in summertime that's, uh, uh, your dad is rich. And your mama's good looking. So hush right. little baby, don't you cry. And and uh and that that started me thinking when George had written or when Ira Goshman had written, um uh your daddy's rich and your mother's good looking. He he was talking about your daddy being rich with money, but I thought, you know, what I'm thinking of is passing on the richness of 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 how we should start living our lives now. And, and what right. we have to try and pass on to our kids, you know. So it was the combination of all those things together, actually, that, that, that brought the song together. So, but at that time, though, when the song really hit it big, the band had already broken up, right? Yeah. What, how did that happen? Well, the thing was, we recorded the album. <clears throat> and in the UK, for many reasons, one of the reasons being that we were so badly managed, as I've always mentioned in the very early days, you, you had our contemporary bands. You had bands like The Who, who had great management, who understood the music they were making, understood the image they should be, they should be projecting. Epstein, of course, did a wonderful job on the Beatles. Andrew Lou Goldham knew exactly how to manipulate the image of the very early, <coughs> early Stones. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, uh, you know, to put across how they should be presented, and uh, and our manager had absolutely no idea at all, and and didn't get involved in that. And and we had the most appalling photo sessions at the beginning of our career, etc. In the UK, and that stuck with us, particularly in the UK. In other parts of the world, people got access to different um, uh, different things, and also our uh, early production, the right records weren't being put out we didn't have any input or say into what records should go out as singles um or what the mix should be um we we had no control over all that uh and so we made this record we were knocked out because we felt it was the best thing we could do at the time and we honestly all felt that we made an album that we could be proud of we for the first time in ages um, of all the tracks that we were pleased with. Um, and But no one in the UK really took any interest in it at all. There was one DJ who became, who was actually a very famous DJ uh, uh, later on, became quite mythical, called Kenny Everett. He was the only DJ who loved it. He absolutely loved it. And I remember doing, um, he had us on his programme, uh, and we had about like a 20-minute or 30-minute or interview with him. And he played a couple of tracks from the album, and I remember Cat Stevens being on and hearing a Rose for Emily and saying, oh, man, I love that song. And I remember being knocked out with that when, when we were getting these sort of reactions. But no one was interested. And we thought we'd put out one single and, and we put out Care of Self 44. And if it's a hit, we'll stay together. Because Chris and I had plenty of money because we had very honest publishers and they were paying the money that should come through to us, which was great because that wasn't, a common thing at the time, but yeah. um, from a performance point of view, 
which was where all the other guys got their money, we were being pretty much shafted. And so the other guys in the band didn't have any money. And they were saying, one of the guys was saying, was saying I- I'm getting married and I've got no money. I'm going to have to move on. So we thought, okay, if this first single's not a hit, we'll, we'll, we'll break up. And we did. And we thought that was that. But we were pleased because the record was out there and we really liked it. And then Al Cooper came over to the UK um, picked up 200 albums he said out of those 200 there was only one that knocked his socks off and that was obviously an oracle and he went back to Clive Davis at CBS and said you have to buy this from whoever's got it and Clive said well we actually own the rights to it he said but we didn't think it was commercial we like the album but we don't think it's commercial and and Al said you've got to put it out you've just got to put it out and long story short um, it was the the, the third, I think, or, or third or fourth single that was released, third single, I think, and, and the very last one that, that Clive was prepared to release. Uh, and, and it didn't have an awful lot of push behind it from CBS, but it caught fire. And um, once it had caught fire, it just went up again to number one in Cashbox and, and in Billboard was two or three um, and became a number one hit in many places in the world. Except for the UK. But the extraordinary thing is, in the UK, um, people of in their 20s and everything, we play at festivals or wherever we're, we're playing, and they know it. And it's, it's, they really know it, and they go crazy when they hear it. And um, it's never been a hit. It's been out five times in the UK. It's never been a hit, but it gets played by everybody as a golden oldie. And that's crazy in the UK because it was never here, but it's it's incredibly well known, and and it's now been used in many films and um, and sinks for adverts and stuff. Um, so it's become very successful, and, and it's become a real staple. And in fact, when BMI used to have their awards, I mean they've stopped doing it now, but um, the last one I had for it was sort of seven million, I think seven million wow. plays. Um, wow. And um, unbelievably, that that's more plays than the many of of the the Beatles records that you would think. I mean, not probably not Hey Jude or anything like that, but things like yeah. I don't know, Eight Days a Week, Hard Days Night. Even I think it's more plays than. Uh, it, but I may be wrong on that. But things that you would think were, you know, it was one of the the top thirty uh, English played records at that time. Uh, a, a few years ago, uh, when they, they were still doing their awards, uh, that had the the most plays of any English records in the in the in the US. So it it really made its mark, you know, and and that's a lovely thing. And and when we when we find that these things, uh, you know, we have we always have a young component in our audience where where we play. I'm not being ageist. I mean. I don't care who comes to see us. It's wonderful. And if people have been following us throughout our whole career, that's even more wonderful. But when you get sort of 20-year-olds as well coming along and and what you're doing when you were 18 or 20 yourself, when you find that it's relating to in ge- a powerful way to people of this generation, that's such an unlooked-for feeling. It's such a lovely feeling. I bet it is. Uh, awesome. Um well, of course, the band broke up and you went on to your own band, Argent. Uh, hold your head up, which I love. It, it reminds me of Paul McCartney. 
uh, was that <laughs> some kind of similarities there, you know, but, uh, uh, of course you had fun in those days too. Uh, how, how was that different than what you had been doing with the zombies with your, with your own band Argent? Well, it was really just, uh, it was more of the same for me, but in the sense that, um, we were always trying to, uh, try out new things and, and, uh, and push boundaries as every band was doing at the time. I always think of the Beatles as being the first progressive band because right from the beginning, they weren't happy to rest on their laurels and try and repeat what they've done. They were always trying to push boundaries and, and try different things. And, and, you know, and I was, I was hungry to try many different things at that time. Um, but the other thing is that um, you write for the people that you're playing with. So I was writing for um, the characteristics of Russ's voice, beautiful voice, but a very different voice to Collins, uh, and to the other players in the band. Um, and, and we were following where things were going. Um, again, I was always myself writing for myself spaces where I could have elongated improvisations. I mean, the funny thing is about Hold Your Head Up is that when that came out, um, singles were not fashionable at all um, if you were a credible, credible band. Um, and I wrote Hold Your Head Up as being an album track uh, and we hadn't got the album finished in time for a tour. So the record company put out an EP um, and we had the six minute 30 ver version of, of Hold Your Head Up, which was basically the the body of the song was three minutes. and There was a three minute organ solo in it. Awesome. <laughs> and, uh, and when it first came out, um, there was one DJ here, again, a, a quite a famous DJ called Alan Freeman. Um, and he, in spite of it being six minutes, 30 long, he would play, he had a, 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 a record program once a week on the BBC and he would play it every week. And unbelievably, the record kept tickling at the bottom of the charts. So we went away to Holland to do a tour. And while we were away, the, um, the record company made, made a, an edit by basically cutting out the whole organ solo. And then the thing went into the, the top 50. And then as soon as we appeared on top of the pops, it shot up to the to sort of top 10, you know, and then, then number four or something like that is where it finished up. Um, and, and that was the story of that song. But do you know what? I had a, a wonderful moment about two years ago, or it might even have been three, when at Christmas time, I was at, at my brother-in-law's place um, and he's Paul McCartney's recording engineer. Um, and we had the radio on and there was a, a program called Sounds of the 70s. It was Johnny Walker. And his guest was Rick Waitman. And there was a spot on this show, and I've done it myself, where you choose um, a long version of a famous track, and a full-length version, and they play it. And, and they said to, to Rick, you know, what, what are you going to choose? And he actually said this. It made my Christmas. It really made my Christmas. He said, I want to choose Hold Your Head Up by Argent. He said, the organ solo on that is the greatest organ solo ever played on the, on the record. <laughs> wow. Wow. And I, I could have fallen over, honestly. It was 
uh, it absolutely made my Christmas. It really, really did. So, so that was lovely. And, and, and again, this is, you know, years and years and years after the record came out. So you think, wow, you know, other people are hearing that and that's, that's lovely. Well, he's not wrong. I mean, that, that solo, man, is on fire. Um, well, uh, I won't keep you in, uh, you know, but I just, I do want to talk about your new album with the zombies. Yeah. I know you were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame a few years ago. I know that was yeah. awesome after all these it years. Was. Yeah. Um, and I know you have great memories of that. Um, but the new album, uh, tell me about that. And uh, how excited were you to record a new album? And what's the reaction been like? The reaction has been superb. Um, we've had, even in the UK, we've had absolutely wonderful reviews in, in all the um, quality papers and, and it's made them also come to our uh, UK concerts um, and and give us out absolutely stunning reviews for our concerts as well and always what I just mentioned to you a little while ago always mentioning the fact that they couldn't believe how young a proportion of the audience was um, uh, so you know it's been it's been a really fabulous reaction um, I told you that uh, Odyssey and Oracle was the album that Chris and I produced ourselves. So there was no outside interference in any part of, any part of the construction of the album. And it's the same with this album, Different Game. Um, and we recorded it. Uh, I've got a studio here. I've been in this particular house for eight years now. And uh, I had a lot of success as, as a producer with a guy called Peter Van Hook, who used to be... Van Morrison's drama um, was in Mike and the Mechanics. Um, and the two of us produ uh, produced several albums that were multi-million sellers for other artists. And in my previous house, we recorded them in the little studio I had there. When I moved to this house, I thought, I've got to have a new studio. And Pete said to me, you've got to get this particular guy uh, called John Flynn to design it acoustically, even though it's only a small building, Gary. It's, it's only small. But it's big enough to have a live room and a control room and to keep all my vintage keyboards and everything in um, and so that we can do everything live, um, which is the way I love to record now, actually, um, in the way that we always used to in the old days, because I think you capture something with a performance when you do that. Um, so this was the first album I co-produced it with a live sound man who's very talented called, called Dale Hansen. Um, and I wrote nine of the 10 songs, but they all had the character when they were recorded that I had heard in my head when I'd written the songs. And, and for me, that's what it's all about. It's absolutely what it's all about. You know, capturing the spirit of what you feel in your mind. It's not to say that other people's visions of things are not good, but they're different to your own and different to the way that you originally perceive them when you, when you write. And, and I love that. And this is the first album since Odyssey and Oracle that we've had that, um, that chance to put out something which is uh, constructions of songs that in the way that we we hear them ourselves we recorded it all live in this, as, as live as we could in the sense that in the old days there was no other way of doing it 
and I, and I've been involved in many sorts of different ways of recording since then. But um, on this particular one, we've been playing up to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We've been playing intensively as it happened in the States. Um, and I thought the band was had never sounded as good. Um, and as soon as we got back, we wanted to record a new album and, and record it live, as, as live as possible. So everyone, about all the time, uh, get Colin to sing a guide vocal so that we respond to how he's singing. He responds to how we're playing uh, and everyone listens to what everyone else is doing and 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 as you do on stage and and starts to make a, a whole out of uh, out of um reacting to to people when they're playing live which i think is part of what music's all about um and we did this and, and in fact in the end because covid had just started we had to stop recording particularly because our our bass player but it was with everybody really but our bass player comes from Denmark and, and everyone was isolated. And I did not want to do it in the way that so many people did during COVID, which is phoning to each other's studios and say, put your part on here. I wanted this right. to be a, a communal creative experience. Um, and we waited really until we did two tracks right at the beginning. And then we waited until um, everybody could get together again. And even though, because of that, the album was recorded over a long period of time. The actual recording sessions were very much like the old days when, I mean, for instance, we did um, a, a thing called Drop Ruling and Stupid. We've just had a um, a documentary made that's been uh, uh, directed by Robert Schwartzman and um, uh, executive produced by Tom Hanks. And that's going to be coming out later this year, I think. Um and uh, and there's a little part on it where, unbeknown to me, the bass player had just held up his iPhone while we were doing a take. And it was a take of something called Dropped, Reeling and Stupid. Um, and you can tell, because each note is exactly the same, that this one take, with a couple of little touches afterwards, was the, was the, was the complete track. That we got, you know, it was the master tape that we chose for the album, and it's pretty much complete as we played it, uh, and it sounds great. And and uh, Colin's vocals great, you know. We just touched up a couple of things afterwards, added added one or two harmonies afterwards to to all the all the tracks. Um, but that aside, we caught that creative um, experience of everyone, you know, locking in together and getting something that you hope that that, that the the experience of everybody playing together is somehow greater than than the parts. So, you know, you hope all the parts are great, but then the final thing, for some reason, on a particular take that you choose, is, you know, you might have done five or six takes or more, uh, and they're all good, but there's something about one of the takes that has a little bit of magic, and that's mm. and that's what you were always after in the old days. And recreating that was really exciting. And it made the whole experience really pleasurable, and I think that that's come out on the album. And uh, so we're we're really really pleased with it, and we're really pleased with the the reaction that it's had too. Some great songs on there. Yeah, talking about the uh, drop, uh, reeling and stupid. A lot of bluesy 
uh, songs on there. And it sounds like something you would have came out with in the 60s, but it has like a fresh yeah. sound. Very cool songs. I've been jamming to them. Uh, <laughs> oh, good man. Really? They're really, I mean, you know, a lot of times you interview people, you say, yeah, that sounds great. And people think, yeah, right. No, nah, man. <laughs> and the harmonies. I love the, har I'm, I'm a harmonies kind of a guy. I love harmonies. Oh, You've well, always you had know a great there's one track on, and this is the sort of thing we could do because the way we're doing it. Uh, and because the thing is that when you've got your own studio, um, you can work on something. And if you feel it suddenly lost its way, you can just go away for three or four days and, and nothing's touched in the studio. So you can then walk back with a fresh mind right. and, and, and pick up where you were. I mean, that is a joy. It really is. On um, There's one track, um, called Rediscover on it with, that starts off with an a cappella, eight bars of, of harmony. Um, and I really wanted to do that because we'd, we'd just been involved with um, a co-starred tour with um, Brian Wilson. And, and I don't know if you've seen this band, but they've, they've got a, he's got a great band behind him um, and it's a big band and they all sing. Um, and they used to warm up every afternoon before their sound check, they used to warm up and before they went on stage, just out in the hall, outside their dressing room, which would only be just up the way from us, um, from our dressing room. And, and they would sing either an old song of Brian's or something that they'd been practicing, but they weren't necessarily doing on stage or a new, new thing. And they, and they'd all, all sing. So you go have eight or nine people, um, singing a cappella and I absolutely loved it and I thought and the next morning uh I had a keyboard in my room my hotel room and just apropos of nothing at all I remember I had written the song rediscover and we had rehearsed it a bit I'd rehearsed it with Colin anyway um so he was getting to know the song and I thought what a great thing it would be to to, to write a little eight bar a cappella introduction uh, and right. then merge into the into the song uh and and I, and it, it was because of that a cappella thing that i heard heard the other guys doing and I, I i didn't want to copy anything but i thought if i could write something that has a little bit of dissonance in it in the harmony um it w wasn't just normal harmonies of thirds and fifths and all that sort of thing but it had some right. interesting moves within the harmony that suddenly after just just eight bars merged into the song proper how cool that would be and we rehearsed the beginning of it i just gave the guys you know i said to colin if you could just sing this and i, I said this song on the bass player could you just take this one and i'll take the full set of thing on the top and and we just tr tried it with four of us and and it was such fun that when we got back home I, I i brushed it up a little bit and we recorded it and and that that eight bars was recorded late at night after we've been recording um we spent two hours and and it's one of the few things on the album where we actually double trap the harmonies because I wanted that feeling of fullness. Um, on the other songs, we deliberately tended not to double track the harmonies because we wanted that raw, more raw feeling of, right. of, 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 of single voices singing together. And, and on uh, Drop Reading the Stupid, I wanted to do one where I shared the lead vocal with Connie. So on the, on the, um, the second section of the verse each time, it's, it, it's, it's, uh, it's sort of me singing, you know, um, so that that was great fun too but it meant that we could just do those things and and we wouldn't double track we would almost never double track except on that one song rediscover and then 
there was a bit in the middle where I'd written some harmonies for the band to sing behind Colin. And I couldn't get it to sound full enough at all. And it happened to be on that day that the, my brother-in-law that I told you was is Paul McCartney's engineer said, you, you should go back to, you know, you've been going back to an old fashioned way of recording. He said, you should go back to what you used to do. He said, just all, all of you sing around one mic. So wow. we did that uh, on the, so all those harmonies in the middle on Rediscover, which sound huge. Um, we suddenly got that sound by all singing around one mic, which of course is what we had to do in the early days. It's what the Beatles sure. always did. Um, sure. And the, the difference was extraordinary. I didn't want to do it, first of all, because I thought if someone's just slightly out of tune, you know, we won't be able to put it right, etc. He said, listen, don't worry about it. Just go out there and do it and try it. And we did. And we, we had it down in an hour, you know, and, and we did double track those harmonies in the middle um uh again because i wanted it to be big um and they were just r's in the middle you know um but we got it sounding really really big and it was that those sort of enjoyable moments that made the recording process you know feel so fresh and so nice it sounds great i mean I, all the songs you know you could tell that you really you know put a lot of heart and love into it uh oh thank you, you. Be you could be my love is is a standout song for me. Thank you. And I I, th I think it's a special thing. It says a lot. There ain't too many bands that have been around for sixty something years and they're still making albums. In fact, there aren't any that really. I mean, the Rolling Stones I think are coming out with a new album. I'm just saying there aren't any bands that are been around for sixty something years that are putting. I mean, man, it's been an honor to talk to you. I didn't mean to keep you. You know, I could talk to you probably all day. Uh, <laughs> oh, I hello. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I appreciate I appreciate you uh, chatting oh, with me. Oh, thank you very much, Gary. Thank you very much. Um, But great album. Like I said, it's one thing to be around for all those years, but to to put out a brand new album that actually sounds great. <laughs> it, it, I mean, you you accomplished something, and I know you have people all all over the world, and and musicians that say that you are the reason that they still play. But I oh, appreciate man. your time. Thank you very much. Well, I I hope all the best to you. You got a, a, a tour coming up, finishing up yep. some tours, right? Uh, where are you going to yeah. be? Sorry. You're coming up. Uh, what what tours have you got uh, coming up? I mean, what, what oh, uh, uh, places? Only, well, I mean, um, we've got a, a month's tour uh, starting in Canada uh, and then going on to the West Coast and then working over to different parts of America. I, I, I don't have all the dates in front of me at the moment, um, but that's going to be um, an intensive month's tour. Um, and we've had a very intense couple of years, actually. So after that, it gets a lot... Uh, we, we have a lot more time off, but um, we, we've just done the first UK tour. We've just finished that, um, that we've done in, in years. And, and it was great. We had great audiences and I'm, I'm pleased to say, um, and a great response to that. Um, and we've got certainly already, we've got a couple of things put into the States for next year, uh, the first quarter of next year, um, including, uh, at least one rock and roll cruise and some uh, southern states um, uh, playing in Florida, 
and um, probably New Orleans. Um, I'm, I'm not I'm not sure exactly where they are, but that's being put in at the moment. I have to make one of those shows. That's that's in my area. I need to come out and check it out. Uh, Great. But, uh, but once again, just thank you so much for uh, talking to me. I know everybody's going to love this. I know they're already excited about me talking to you, but thank you so much for talking to me today. Oh, thanks, Gary. Great pleasure. You have a good day. Take care, man. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Be sure to head on over to zombiesmusic.com, the official website of the zombies. Check out their new album, Different Games. You're going to love it. And always remember to keep the music real.